Hello, Compass. Wow, so great to be here with you. So thankful to be here. God bless you all. Uh, Mary and I are thrilled to be here. We always love being at Compass, and uh, we just thank God upon every remembrance of you. And one of the words I want to bring you is that all over this country, I run into people who are either from Compass or they have, uh, they've been very significantly touched by uh, Compass. And uh, there's just a wonderful savor. That's a good Pauline phrase from the New Testament, a wonderful savor that comes from this church. And it does start at the top. It starts with the pastor in that sense. I'm just so thankful for Mike Fabares as my friend and for the entire Fabares clan. They're just friends. And you know what? We need that in the Christian faith. We need, we need people that we actually like being around. And... Uh, and we need people in the deepest sense who we can run the race together in such a way that we, we will, by God's grace and for God's glory, end this race together. We, we will not do this well alone. And uh, so you are a, a tangible evidence of the promise of God in this generation, and I am so thankful. Now, Mike said something very interesting. He said it's not just grandchildren. Because our friendship came before either of us had grandchildren. But we both do now. And we are glad to talk to you about it. <laughs> and I will tell you, it is a life-transforming experience. And anyone in this room know what I'm talking about? You're going to nod when I'm talking about it. And I can simply say, I do like him better as a grandfather. It's, 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 it's a better model. This is what, this is what works. And, and, and not only that, it is a virus. It just happens. And so the two of us may be anywhere in the world and a picture pops up and we're not sending pictures of each other. <laughs> Here, pictures of grandkids and man, how the glory of God is shown in that. So rich, rich part of the being in the promise of God and in the people of God, among the people of God that uh, you can share each other's joys, and uh, well, how rich that is. So I am so privileged to be here. I think so much of this church. I respect so much this pulpit and this ministry, and so it is a great, great privilege to be here. I'm going to direct our attention to the book of Titus, and we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verse 11, through the first eight verses of chapter 3 in Titus. You see on the slide the, the theme before us. You see, in the present age. And then the major theme, which is the power of godliness in a godless age. And I think all of us are really seeking to understand how in the world are we to live out Christian faithfulness in what is a very perplexing time. And we just have to be honest, we are living in a very perplexing age. And yet, the New Testament is just extremely clear to us that the imperative is that we live godly lives in a godless age to show the power of the gospel and the glory of God until Jesus comes. But let's look at this passage. Let's look at, at Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and then, as I said, the first eight verses of chapter 3, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness, in this case, lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is such an amazing passage, and we're going to unpack a bit of the amazing character of this, of this passage. The entire letter to Titus is such a remarkable gift to us in Scripture. And there is so much behind this that, frankly, it's just healthy for us to bring to the forefront for a few moments to understand the context of what we have just read. Look, for instance, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul identifies himself He's writing the letter by the Holy Spirit, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Okay, every single word here just cries out to us. So first of all, you have Paul identify himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is not Paul the volunteer. This is Saul the transformed sinner who becomes Paul, who is then called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So here Paul identifies himself, and he's writing to Titus, but he's writing to Titus in particular in order that this letter might inform the ministry that Titus is going to fulfill in Crete. He has been sent to Crete because of a pastoral emergency. But before we turn to that, let's look at how Paul refers to Titus. Look at verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Paul refers to Titus as his child, as, as, as his son. Okay, marvelous background here. The Apostle Paul, unmarried, no children. The Apostle Paul, set apart for the cause of Christ as an apostle. And, and then, of course, as you know, the timeline of the Apostle Paul, toward the end of his life, as he's writing to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he makes very clear that he's about to be martyred. His life was such that his itinerant ministry, you know, from place to place, and, and he makes very clear it was, it was not possible that he could have a wife and, and that he could be 
uh, to fulfill the, 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 the calling of a husband in this. He's not a father, but he has children in the spirit. And, and in this case, it comes out so beautifully because there are two young men who are identified in the New Testament as spiritual sons of the Apostle Paul. And you know both of them. It, because one of them's right here, Titus. The other one's Timothy. And so the Apostle Paul, who had no sons, had two of them. And they were mightily Paul's sons in the ministry. And it's such sweet language. He refers to Titus here, my true child in a common faith. The same phrase he will use about Timothy, my true child. Now, why two? Okay, this is just in the plan and providence of God. You know, the signs of the, of, of the providence and the richness of the mercy and the power, the sovereignty of God, you know, all these are testified to in Scripture. And sometimes you just, you just see a glimpse of it and you go, how perfect is that? Okay, so one of the big tension points in the early church was the relationship between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And one of the big theological crises in the early church was the question as to whether new converts to Christianity who were Gentiles had basically first to become Jews in order to be seen as good Christians. And, and that was not a quiet argument. There were those who were quite certain that given the succession of the covenants, first of all, the covenant that was made with Israel, then the covenant of redemption, that you, you had to go through the first covenant to get to the second and the New Testament says the answer to that is no, you do not. You do not have to become a party to the first covenant in order to be a party to the second covenant. And as a matter of fact, as you see in, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will say, we are grafted onto the promises of the first covenant. So we who are Gentiles, who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we inherit the promises of Israel even as we are not and never were under that covenant. It's a gift. But we are grafted on to the covenant of old. And, and so Paul has a Jewish son and a Gentile son. So in terms of the conflict of working this thing out, Paul could say, I have two spiritual sons. I have two true children in the faith. One of them is Timothy, born to a Jewish mother, taught at the knee of Eunice and, and Lois, and, and raised according to the law of God. Except for one thing, he wasn't circumcised. His father was Roman. He was not circumcised. So the apostle Paul, to make very clear how Jewish Timothy is as an obedient Jewish son, actually has him circumcised so that when the issue comes up, Timothy is as Jewish as Jewish can be. And he is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul has the second son, Titus. Titus is, is Roman. Titus is a Gentile. And by the way, the very issue we're talking about erupted in controversy in Crete. So who does Paul send? Titus. Okay? You want a, you want a graphic picture of the fact you don't have to become Jewish to become Christian? I'm going to send you a Gentile extension of my personal ministry. And so he's writing to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. It's just such a beautiful thing. He loves Titus. He sent Titus. And just like you have in First and Second Timothy, so much of our knowledge of how to organize the church, because and that's why we call them the pastoral epistles, you have here in Titus 
the same kind of message, which is why you have parallelisms, for example. If you're looking for qualifications of elders, where do you look? First Timothy 3 and Titus. So it's, it's right here. And here's where we also need to understand something else. When the Apostle Paul sent Titus to Crete, and then he sent to Titus this letter, he puts together right order and right doctrine and makes very clear both are necessary. So in the church, we must have right doctrine and we must have right order, and neither will exist without the other for long. Okay, I hope that makes sense. It's really important to the church. We need right doctrine, but we also need right order. So one of the first things is the Apostle Paul, he jumps into doctrine for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life. And then he goes on and says, which he promised, God never lies. And he promised before the ages began. And he just lays on the doctrine. In chapter two, verse one, he will say, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. But notice what happens as early as verse five. He says, you gotta have elders, buddy. The church needs elders. The situation there in Crete, the crisis there in Crete, it cries out for elders. You're gonna have to have those who are set apart, called by God in such a way that they will carry the leadership of the church and they will guard the flock of God. You need elders. And so it's interesting to me that as he's writing to Titus, it's like doctrine order, doctrine order, doctrine order. It's just a good reminder to us. Every single... New Testament church has to give very serious and simultaneous attention to right order and right doctrine. But we began with chapter 2, verse 11, and our concern is the present age and how we are to live faithfully in the present age. Okay, so the present age shows up here. It shows up in verse 12. We are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay, so what is the present age? Is it now? Was it then? About 2,000 years separation between when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Titus at Crete, and we're reading it right here in Southern California in 2024. So as the New Testament mentions the present age, its main meaning is the age of the church, okay? So when in the New Testament, primarily when you see this present age, and by the way, there are variants in the New Testament. So given the spiritual warfare we're in, this present age is sometimes referred to as this present darkness. And so it's just very clear, very candid. This is our time. This is the time of the church. And so in this sense, we're in this present age, but the Apostle Paul was in this present age. And that's really important to us because the other meaning of the present age means like right now, this time. And, the, and so, you know, we as human beings, we have to kind of figure out where we, where we fall in a timeline. And so you go to the history department and the local, you know, college and they're going to have periods of history. And when they talk about the present age, and you put that in, say, an American academic or cultural context, they're talking about the modern age, all right? And so you say, well, this present age means the modern age. Well, does it mean the modern age for us? Yes, this is our part of the present age. But here's what's really important. The present age for us is the age inaugurated by Christ, 
Okay, now here's where things get marvelous. Okay, as if they're not already, just look at this. Look at this. How do you define the present age? How are you gonna define it? You're gonna define it on a clock? You're gonna define it on a calendar? You're gonna define it on a schedule? No, let me tell you how you define it. And nowhere in the Bible is it defined this way in such proximity. This is incredible. Notice verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then look, just a few words later, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at chapter three. We read it, verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what is this present age? Let's follow. This is, this is marvelous. This helps us all. Where are we? We are between two appearings. And nowhere else in Scripture do they appear in such close proximity. This is a short little book, and God knew we needed it. All right, so where are we in all of history? You, you, you take creation of the earth in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created created the heavens and the earth, and take, then you take the kingdom of Christ and the other end of history. Where are we? We're between the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation and the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom in fullness. We are between one appearing and another appearing. We are redeemed because of the appearing. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is Jesus born in Bethlehem. This is Jesus who lived his sinless life. This is Jesus who died on the cross as our substitutionary savior. This is the Christ who on the third day was raised from the dead for our salvation. This is the Christ who ascended unto the Father. And then, you know, the ancient creed has it right. From thence shall he come to judge the quick and the dead. The time of the church is the time between the appearing and the appearing. We are living in this incredible moment in history between the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation and the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ to consummate the age to come. The present age is the time between these two appearings. This really helps us, doesn't it? So it leads to an obvious question. Let's be honest. The obvious question is why? Why are we here? Why is there time between the appearing and the appearing? Why is this not all collapsed? Why did Jesus leave? Well, he tells us. He goes to prepare a place for us. In the Gospel of John, the marvelous discourse in which Jesus says, it is good for you that I am going. And where I am going, you will one day be with me. In my house are many mansions. In other words, the, there is a reason why the timing is as it is, but there's more to it than that. It's not that, this, that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. It is that in the age of the church, we bear the assignment for the preaching of the gospel, the declaration of the gospel to the nations. Why is there time between the appearing and the appearing? It is because of the age of the church, which is the age of the gospel and is the age of preaching and is the age of missions. 
But the New Testament makes clear it's even more than that. Yes, it starts out with go ye into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And we, we, we understand that imperative and we understand why Jesus appeared and will appear. And in the meantime, we've got an assignment. But it is also, it is also to show God's glory in the present age. So we're not here by accident. When Paul wrote to Titus, he made very clear, this present age is an age in which the Father's good pleasure is to show his glory and a redeemed people in the midst of a fallen world. It's an amazing thing. New, New Testament will say we are a sign of contradiction to the world. We, 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 are, we are an embassy of heaven right here in the world. Christians are left in this age, in the world, for a specific purpose of bringing the Father glory. How? By living godly lives in a godless age. It's an incredible passage because it tells us that everything we experience is a part of this big story. It's a part of the Christian church in this age being left in this world in order to preach and teach and take the gospel and in order to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to show godliness in a godless age. So let's look carefully at the language he's used here. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Notice the next in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay, now there's gonna be more to it waiting for our blessed hope, but hold that for a moment. And let's go down to chapter three. There's a before and after here. Paul says to Titus about the Christians there in Crete, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So there's the positive, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then here's the past, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's very interesting that if you look at those last verses of chapter 2, the first verses of chapter 3, there's some fascinating parallelisms. But basically, Positively and negatively, the Apostle Paul was saying, here, here is why we are here. It is to live godly lives in a godless age. But it is not that we're living godly lives in a godless age as people who are never godless. This is what's so wonderful. We were as godless as the godless are now. Can we look at each other and be honest about that? There's a virgin-born Savior. There are no virgin-born believers. We are Adam's children, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. All right, so it's not like we look at a godless world and we go, man, that is just awful. Those people are nuts. They are depraved. We were... We were, I mean, this language is incredibly strong. And, and things, I mean, some of it kind of scandalous. I mean, frankly, 
We ourselves were once foolish, <laughs> disobedient, okay, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. All right, now you're stepping on toes. Passing our days in malice and envy. You ever noticed that? Yeah, what'd you do today, sweetheart? Well, mostly malice and envy. That was, <laughs> I, I would say the two main things I'm thinking about today were malice and envy. And when I was maliciously envious, I was particularly good. Um, <laughs> Man, malice, passing our days in malice and envy. And how about the next part? Hated by others and hating one another. This is not about someone else, brothers and sisters. Paul's writing this to Christians on Crete. Okay, now, so some of you may be smart enough, you're saying, well, that was true of people on Crete. <laughs> now, this little island in the Mediterranean, and you, you know, Crete doesn't have good public relations in the scripture. It doesn't. It's even the occasion for the Cretan predicament. It's in the Bible. If a Cretan tells you all Cretans are liars, is he telling the truth? I know some of you got it. Some of you about dinner time tonight, you're going to go, oh, wait, just a minute. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it, it, but Crete is also historically, so things change and things don't change. Crete was already in the first century known as a place of intense violence between rival clans and rival families. And even now, Crete is artificially politically divided to try to reduce some of that violence. Okay, so you say, oh, okay, Moeller, this is to Titus on Crete. Okay, here's why you don't have that trap door. The Holy Spirit gave this to the entire church. This is the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Jesus Christ, who has written this for the church. In this sense, here's the bad news, folks. We're all Cretans. And I know, I'm telling you the truth. All right. The before and the after is just made abundantly clear. And in this age, in this present age, which is the very phrase that is used in verse 12, in this present age, a sovereign God who has redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb, that one true and living God is showing his glory by the fact that there are people alive right here in Southern California who once were all of these things, but are those things no more? You understand what a powerful apologetic that is? I mean, we need the world to know as honestly as we know that but for the power of the gospel, we would be horrible people. Okay, no, that's what the Bible's telling us. We not only would be, we were. We were horrible people. And, and you know, it's true that just given the limitations of time and space, individually, we can't be as horrible as when we collect ourselves together. You put us together, that's a lesson just as old as the Old Testament. You put us together, and now we're a puddle of rebellion. Now we're a coup. We're now organized crime. And you say, well, that's true, you know, in Sicily. Hey, it's it's it's. It's true in the nursery. <laughs> I know. You, you, 
I'm just telling you, let's be honest, they look real innocent, but there's a godfather in there. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a conspiracy which is afoot. So that's the way it works. Here we're told that God, to bring glory to his own name, has redeemed a people who are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You know, a couple of things that I, I just want to share with you. As a teenage Christian, I didn't like the word godly. And, and I want to tell you why. I, I found it very difficult to understand it because I'm really growing in theological knowledge and in doctrinal understanding. And, and you know, one of the most important things you come to know is that God is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is, you know, all-powerful. He says, let there be light, and there's light. He is sovereign over the entire universe. No one can stop him or thwart his plans. He is God, okay? So try being godly. Let there be light. You better flip a switch, sister. Because you're not creating light because you say it. And he holds the entire universe together by the word of his power. What are you holding together? Well, you're called to be godly. Hold something together. Or how about this? Be sovereign. That is the most ridiculous command ever given. Just be sovereign. Yeah, try it. So that can't be what godly means. I was confused. And what, is it, what does it mean? And, and that you have godliness and you have godly. So it doesn't mean that God's attributes of power are given to us. No, in the scripture, it becomes very clear what it means is that God's moral attributes are to be increasingly visible in us. God is patient. We're called to be patient. He's infinitely patient. We're not infinitely patient. I'm not infinitely patient. I'm impatient with you, not even following this fast enough. <laughs> Kidding. No, it's, we're to be patient. God is infinitely merciful. We are to grow into being merciful. God is loving kindness. He's got on all the biblical manifestations of the moral attributes of God. Here's the Here's the lesson for us. We are to look more like that with every passing day. You say, how's that gonna happen? Well, this is the means of grace, by the preaching of the word of God, by the fellowship of the saints, by Christian parents inculcating virtues in their children, raising them in the nurtured admonition of the Lord, by the ministry of the word and the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are conformed unto Christ's likeness. So this is actually a very important issue. If we are not more patient in this decade of our Christian life than we were in the last decade, something's wrong with us. We should be more patient. We should be more kind. At this stage in life, you can look at me, I am not 21, all right? 21's in the rearview mirror back there, decades. All right, I wanna be really honest with you. I think that as a young Christian man, I missed a lot of opportunities to be kind. And I feel that. 
And I'm not thinking of any particular moment. I'm just saying, I don't think I worried a whole lot as a really, really young man about being kind. Thankfully, the grace of God, I think, made me kind when I wasn't even thinking about being kind. But how much richer is it? How much more faithful is it to think, Father, I want to be more kind this year than last year? And, and, and Father, show me how to be more merciful, you know, this decade than I was last decade. Father, if, if you'll show your glory in me, you know, let it show up in things like this, like being self-controlled and upright, living godly lives in the present age. Okay, so now I'm going to bring in something a little unusual, and uh, I'm going to bring an economist in to this discussion, because I just want to tell you, I, in thinking about this passage, I think about Thomas Sowell, and some of you are going, oh, I immediately get it. 99.9% of you are going, what's he got to do with anything? Thomas Sowell's an economist right here in California at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. And years ago, decades ago, he wrote a book entitled The Conflict of Visions. And he said, if you understand the world, you want to understand the great conflicts of the age, you want to understand today's politics, you want to understand what's going on in the world, he said, you need to understand there's a great conflict between those whose worldview or view of the world is constrained and those whose view of the world is unconstrained. Okay, I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul's talking about here. When he talks about being self-controlled, we are constrained. We're a constrained people. Can we look at each other and acknowledge that? We are constrained by creation. We are constrained by God's design in making us. We are constrained by the moral law. We are constrained by the commandments of God. We are constrained by a network of relationships into which we are put, including such things as honor your father and mother. We are constrained by relationships. And Sowell's point is this. That in the modern age, there are those whose worldview is absolutely unconstrained. And they say, we are not constrained by any external authority. We are not constrained by any set of social expectations. We are not constrained by the accumulated knowledge and, and, and the contribution of human tradition. We are not only not constrained by the law of God, we reject that there even could be the constraint of the law of God. Now, Saul wrote that, like I say, decades ago, and I just want to point out how true his observation was, because right now, we're talking about headline news almost every day when there are people who are saying, we're not even constrained by anatomy and physiology. We're not even constrained by XX and XY chromosomes. We're not constrained by male and female created he them. And all I'm saying is, I think there's something deeply biblical in looking at this and recognizing when you have here what it means to be godly and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, it means that we know, to the glory of God, we are constrained. We do not live as if we are an unconstrained people. We're to live self-controlled lives. We are to hold ourselves to obedience to the command of Christ. 
Upright means righteous, and righteous means righteous corresponding to what is right. Godly lives are those that are self-controlled and upright. And you'll notice there's more to it here because the Apostle Paul gets very concrete to speak evil of no one, chapter 3, verse 2. Verse 1, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This gets tangible, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. You know, there are times in which it would be easier for us if the Bible were not so specific. (laughs) But it steps right on our toes. Godly lives are to be lives that are submissive in just the right way, obedient in every right sense, ready for every good work. And it's really interesting that that shows up again. That's at the very end of the passage that we read, the good works. Because as you notice here in chapter three, the saying is trustworthy, verse eight, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And you say, well, now we're talking about works. Yes, we're talking about works. And notice how the Apostle Paul does this. Again, this is such a short passage filled with so much. So just go back because the Apostle Paul makes very clear we're not saved by works. And he actually says it just a few verses before. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified, how? By his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay. So in one passage here, just a few verses, right here in the heart of this very short letter, we have appearing and appearing. We have this present age. We have the list of the things we are to do. We have the list of the things we are not to do to do. We have right order, and we have right doctrine, and then now we have justification by faith, and it's made very clear that none of our works contribute to our salvation, but God's saved people are called to good works. You know, getting half of that won't work. It isn't good enough to say we are saved by grace and not of works. Therefore, We're called to do no works. No, it's the order that means everything. It is the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone that saves. But Christ-saved people are to be set loose to do good works in the world. You know, we're not saved for lawlessness. We're saved for obedience. We're We're not saved for a loss of self-control, we're saved in order to demonstrate to God's glory self-control in an unself-controlled age. We're to be God's constrained people in an unconstrained age in order that people will see us and not say how good we are, but that they will be driven to ask the question, how could this be? And the sole sufficient answer is Jesus Christ and his gospel. I just think it's so powerful to see here in verse 8 There's there's no reluctance at all to call believers to good works. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. (laughs) You know, the Apostle Paul writes run-on sentences. 
Because it's sort of like he says, look, we're saved by grace, not of faith, and not of work. Excuse me, we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. And we are called to good works. Now just get the order right. And, and, and we're called to good works and they're good for people. That's exactly what happens here in, in, in verse eight. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, period. He doesn't stop. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Okay, thank you, Paul. Evidently, we need that. We need this very clear juxtaposition of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the call to do good works in the present age, in a fallen world, as a testimony to salvation by grace alone. We're in this age, in this present age, between the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation and the awaited appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ to claim his church and to fully establish his kingdom and to complete all of his promises. And yet there's one more thing we need to note very carefully before we leave this passage this morning. Chapter 3, verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All right. How, don't don't raise a hand. But are there any heirs and heiresses with us today? I mean, in the classic historic sense, is there a, is there a billionaire's son or daughter in the room? Are, are, are any of you hiding the fact that you're about to inherit untold wealth? You're hiding it pretty well, I will say that. I just don't look around the room and see any apparent heirs or heiresses in the sense that throughout much of human history, you would be able to tell. You would be able to tell. The word heir is such an incredibly powerful word because most human beings aren't, in an earthly sense, heirs too much. Most of us were not born to dukes or inherited wealth. And, uh, you know, there are a few, but you look at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and you just don't see the Fortune 500 heirs and heiresses club. But what you do see is that every single believer is an heir of everything that is promised in Christ. We don't use this word as often as it was used in the first century, and we need to pause for just a moment and recognize, do we know what we're being told here? Do we know that we're being told that we are joint heirs with Christ? Do we... Do we know that we're being told here that we are to live in the world in this present age, not just as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and in whom the Holy Spirit is dwelling, not only as those who are self-controlled and upright and who are resisting worldly passions, you know, we are evidencing the right things, we are doing good works, we're not evidencing the wrong things, but we're also to live in this present age as heirs, 
Don't you think that would fundamentally reshape the way you look at the world? You know, if, if we saw ourselves as heirs of all things, wouldn't that transform for one thing what we think we have to get out of this life? You know, I'll just tell you, okay, if you place all your hopes in this life only, you're of all heirs and heiresses most to be pitied. But we're heirs of all things in the kingdom of Christ. In order to understand this, just very quickly, look back to the book of Galatians chapter four. At the end of chapter three, the apostle Paul writes, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he has a child, is no different than a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, appearing, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, remember that we talked about some of the conflict in the church and the question about, you know, those who were Jewish who came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who were Gentile and that came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's also right here in this passage in chapter 3 and the very last verse, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The apostle Paul says, look, we're all, as Gentile believers, we are grafted onto the promises that were given to Abraham so, and his seed. So we are actually joint heirs of Abraham. But that's not where he's headed. That's just true. And, and that's really true. And that, that's precious. We have received the promises as if we were Abraham's offspring. But then the apostle Paul narrows it and makes very clear. No, in Christ, we are now heirs by adoption. It's not just that we are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. We are heirs according to the promise of God in Christ. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. By God's sovereign act for his glory, by the power of the gospel, we are saved from our sin. We are regenerated and given newness of life. We are born again. To us are given the promises given to Abraham. But far more than that, we have been adopted by God as sons and daughters through the blood of his own son. And even as his son is his heir, by his grace, we are joint heirs with Christ. Now, why spend this time? It's because of this. If you were an heir to an earthly fortune, wouldn't it change the way you look at the world? If you, were, if you knew you're the heir of an immense, incalculable fortune, 
wouldn't you have a different disposition towards understanding your role in the world? Well, what if you are told you are a joint heir with Christ of all that is promised by the Father? You know, if, if I knew I were an heir of an earthly fortune, I would not worry so much about many worldly things. But I'm not the heir to an earthly fortune, or if so, nobody's called me. There might be some billionaire on an island who wrote my name in a will, and I don't know about it, but if I did know about it, it would make a difference. I wouldn't worry about some things that I allow myself to worry about. If I knew that I was the heir of an earthly fortune, I would feel like I've got to live worthy of that fortune. But I'm not that kind of heir. Let me tell you what I'm the heir of. And let me tell you what you are the heir of. All the promises of God. All right. So if we know that, doesn't that change the way we understand what it means to live in this present age? Of course it does. And between the appearing and the appearing, in this present age, which is described as an ungodly age, we're to live godly lives, we're to do good works because we have been saved by grace. And we're deployed in this world as ambassadors for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will live every day of our lives as an heir, right? We are going to live every day of our lives as an heir, knowing that we are heirs only by grace, but we are heirs for eternity, and nothing the Father has for us will not come to us in full. And you know what that means? That means we don't have to get any ultimate satisfaction in this age. That is a liberating truth, because all the people around us who are so anxious about things they're worried they're gonna miss out on something in this age. By the way, one of our goals in life should be to miss out on many things in this age. But you do understand that if this age is all there is, but it isn't. We're called to live godly lives in a godless age, in this present age, between the appearing and the appearing in such a way that every time we get together as Christians, we say, so, how's the, how's the air thing going? <laughs> that means when we gather together for worship, we are the heirs of Christ. Gathered together in true worship is a foretaste of the things to come. And we have ultimate satisfaction in knowing that we are in this age, this present age, for a reason but we are being shaped for eternity as heirs. Now, that'll get us through just about anything in this present age because we are in this age waiting for the appearing of all the promises. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in your word. Father, thank you for telling us where we live between the appearing and the appearing that we are awaiting. Father, help us to show your glory, we pray, for the everlasting power and glory of your name until you bring 
the age to come. We pray this as heirs by grace. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.